I'd like to ask you to consider that the number one cause of death in America and the world, for that matter, is selfishness. Selfishness. Notice, if you will, in this particular passage, if we go back to chapter 2 and verse 16 of the book of Genesis, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. We have two motives for everything that we do. Psychologists have been studying motivation for a long time. But generally, we can boil all motives down to two basic motives. This is what the Bible teaches. One motive is either going to be selfishness, or the other motive is going to be love. Those are the two motives. We're either going to live to please ourselves, which is selfish, or we're going to live to please God which is love. There are two Greek words that actually describe these two motives. The Greek word that has to do with selfishness is epithumia. It is the evil desire of the flesh. Any desire that we have to do anything that is contrary to what God says is the best way and the right way and the loving way to do anything is selfish. Epithumia. The evil desires of the flesh. Now God created us with desires. After he created man with all of our desires, he looked at man and he said, Behold, it is very good. Our desires in and of themselves are not wrong. It's whenever we are deceived like Adam and Eve were by Satan to fulfill the natural desires that God created us with in ways that are contrary to the way that God says this is the best way to do it. Now, before Satan entered into the world, there was no such a thing as selfishness. There was no such thing as epithumia. There was no such thing as an evil desire of the flesh. It's only when Satan entered into the world with his lies that he deceived man into doing something that was not pleasing to God. The desire to break what God says is the loving thing only occurred because of Satan. But as long as Satan is in the world, he's going to continue to lie and he's going to continue to try to arouse within us a desire to do what is contrary to God's will. And this is the thing. It always will lead to death. It will always lead to death. Selfishness leads to death. The underlying problem in all relationship problems, every problem that you've got right now in your family, in all of your relationships, the underlying problem is selfishness. Selfishness is killing us. It always leads to death. Look, if you will, with me in the book of James, chapter 1. In James, chapter 1... Beginning in verse 13, James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, 
nor does he tempt anyone. Notice verse 14. But each one is tempted when, are you hearing? When by his own evil desire. That's epithumia. By his own selfish desire. He is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. You know what sin is? All sin is is selfishness. You name a sin, it's selfish. Before a selfish behavior occurs, sin, there has to be a selfish desire, epithumia. So the underlying cause of all problems that we face in our relationships is selfishness. He goes on, he says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, there are three types of death that are mentioned there. One is eternal death. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, they were cast out of the garden. They no longer had access to the tree of life. Another type of death was physical death. Because of a choice that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, made, we're going to die. We're going to die physically, everybody. And then a third death that, that the Bible talks about in the book of Genesis that they had is shame, spiritual death. The feeling that I'm a nobody, the feeling that I'm a worthless human being, that is death. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They didn't have shame. They had a healthy self-esteem. They felt good about themselves. They knew they were valuable. They were alive. Life was good. But then now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will die. He goes on and he says, listen to Satan. Listen to Satan. Bold face, Satan says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice the idea of shame. Chapter 2 and verse 25, the man and woman were naked, and they felt no shame. Now... They feel shame. They feel shame. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. You know what that is? That's shame. You know why people don't want to get around God? 
Because when I'm around God, when I'm around love, I realize how imperfect I am. They felt ashamed. Being around God makes me feel worse about myself. That's death. He goes on, he says, So they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He said, Where are you? And he answered, Well, I heard you in the garden. And listen to this. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. That's spiritual death. That's shame. Whenever we have a low self-esteem, whenever we are spiritually dead, we feel like that we're worthless human beings. We run from God. We hide from God. And we're afraid. We're afraid. There's no greater pain that anybody can experience than the pain of being a worthless human being. And that's what shame is. Shame is the feeling that I'm a worthless human being. I'm a nobody. My life doesn't matter. Why am I here? I don't understand why God even allowed me to come into this world. That's shame. A lot of people don't go to church because all they do is they just feel more shame. They feel more dead. When I go to church, I even feel worse about myself because I feel like I'm a bad person. That's what was going on with Adam and Eve. They didn't want to go to church. They didn't want to be be around godly people because it only makes me feel worse about myself. That's shame. That's death. Selfishness always leads to an unhealthy life and eventually death. Second point I'd like to make this morning is that everyone in this room Everyone in this room is selfish. Everyone here this morning is selfish. We all have a selfish nature. Look with me, if you will, in the book of Romans, chapter 3. A lot of times as a counselor, couples come to me, And selfishness is killing their marriage. Selfishness is killing their relationship. And a lot of times they want to come and they want to take the other person's inventory. They want to sit and listen to me or list to me to tell me all the selfish things that are going on in in their their spouse's life. This is how they're selfish. This is how they're selfish. Just taking their inventory. I mean, making a long list and checking it twice. But that didn't change anything. If I want to improve my family, if I want to make my family better, I have to take responsibility for me. I have to be humble. I have to acknowledge that I am selfish and that my selfishness is hurting my family. Until I do that, nothing is going to change in my family. Nothing is going to change in your family. Your family will never be better. It will only get worse. It will become more dead. But you're selfish, and your selfishness is hurting your family today. Pretending that it's everybody else's fault does not make families better. You know, the idea if everybody else would just do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it, like they're supposed to do it, as long as they're supposed to do it, my life would be great. Ain't going to happen. We're all selfish. Notice what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 3. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Am I better than you? 
Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. All he's saying is that they're all selfish. They're all sinners. They're all selfish. Everybody is selfish. You're no better than I am. I'm no better than you are. We are all selfish. And our selfishness hurts each other. Our selfishness hurts each other. If we're going to make our families better, we have to give attention to ourselves in becoming an unselfish person. In becoming a loving person. There's only one being that is not selfish, and that's God. He is perfectly unselfish. God. The rest of us are selfish. He goes on, he says, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, the book of Romans. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world, or selfishness entered into the world through one man, talking about Adam and Eve that we read about a while ago, just as sin or selfishness entered the world through one man and death through sin, again, death through sin, selfishness, and in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. We're all selfish. So how do we go about not being a selfish person? How do I go about being a loving person? How do I do that? You know, there are a lot of self-help books out there today. And I'm going to tell you right now that reading self-help books does not change us from being a selfish person. Reading self-help books does not make us an unselfish person. I'd like to also suggest to you that counselors cannot make me an unselfish person. Counselors cannot change our selfish nature. There are over 400 theories of psychotherapy. I haven't studied all of them. I've studied a lot of them. And one of the things that I learned while I was studying those 400 theories of psychotherapy is that they talk about how to help a person change. And so if you were to go to a humanistic counselor, they can help you change. But I'm going to tell you, in every one of those theories, change that's talked about is change within our nature. Humanistic counseling does talk about change but it only talks about change within our nature. You know, you can come to me as a, you know, for, as a marriage counselor, and I can say, okay, husband, this is what you needed to be, to, do a love, to be a more loving husband. You need to start picking your underwear up off the floor. Okay, I can do that. And you need to start writing your, letter, your, your wife some love letters. Oh, okay, I can do that. You need to send her some flowers every now and then. Oh, okay, I can do that. You know, we can talk about being a better communicator. We can talk about learning relationship skills. But that does not change our nature. There is only one power that can change our nature. And it is the power of God. 
If you want to become an unselfish person, if you want to become a better person, if you want to become a loving person, if you want to make your family better, there is no way that you can do that without turning to God. There's no way. God is love. Everything that God's ever done has been a loving thing. Everything that God has ever done has been a loving thing. I know a lot of people that get angry with God because we try to put our definition of of love onto God. You know, the worldly definition of love is anything that makes me feel good, that's comfortable, that's pleasing, that's enjoyable, that's comfortable, that's warm and fuzzy. So if you love me, you're not going to hurt me. That's our definition, the worldly definition of love. And so what we do is we end up putting our definition of love onto God and say, God, if you love us, you won't allow us to hurt. You won't allow us to suffer. And so when hurt and suffering comes our way, we think God's not loving. That's a lie. You can't believe this book. That's not God. That's our definition of love. Instead of putting our definition of love onto God, we need to let God be the definition of love. We need to understand what love is by understanding what, who God is. I know a lot of parents who believe that in order for them to love their children, they can't do anything to hurt them. And so they're, they don't discipline their children. I don't want to hurt you. They give them everything they want. I don't want to hurt you. They don't set boundaries. They don't set rules. They don't say no because I don't want to hurt you. And the children are undisciplined. They're angry. They're fearful because they have had a worldly definition of love applied to them. I'd like to ask you to consider that it hurts to hurt, but it's not bad to hurt. Sometimes it takes a lot of love to allow someone to hurt. Sometimes it takes a lot of love to do something that's not going to make somebody happy. But we do it because we know it's best for them. That's what God does. Everything God has ever done has been a loving thing. The fact that God allows Satan to exist is a loving thing. The fact that God allows us to suffer and to go through difficulties is a loving thing. Our job is to try to understand how that's a loving thing. There's only one power that can change our nature, and it's the resurrective power of God's love. I'm going to ask you to consider, do you believe that that God created the heavens and the earth? Do you know why that's so important? Because the same power that God used to take nothing and bring it to life is the same power that's used to help us to give life from our dead bodies. It's the only thing that can take away our shame. It's the only thing that can give us eternal life. It's the only thing that can guarantee that when our physical body dies that we're going to have a resurrected body and we're going to live eternally with our resurrected body. It's the same power. It's the power of God's love. The power of God's love created this world that we live in. Look around. We cannot make something alive that's dead. We don't do it. We can't do it as human beings. It's impossible. 
I'll tell a story right quick and then we'll conclude. I had a, uh, a little Easter chicken when I was five years old. And uh, back when I was five years old, you could do this. You'd have this little dyed chicken. You know, it had different colors. It had blue and orange and, and red. And I had one of those Easter chickens. I even had a book, How to Take Care of Your Chicken. And I love that chicken. I had a box and I had a little bowl with food in it. I took a little baby jar cap full of water and I carefully put it in there and I made sure that it always had water. I had a lamp that would shine on it that would keep it warm. I loved my chicken. Sunday morning on what was called Easter morning, I went in and I looked at my chicken and my chicken was dead. It had drowned in that cap full of water and it broke my heart. My chicken was dead and I cried and I cried and I cried and I did everything I could to bring it back to life. And I picked it up It was still dead. Got my book out and I read my book about how to take care of your chicken. Picked it up. Poked it. Punched his stomach. Got it by his wings and nothing worked. We cannot. I learned a great lesson. I can't make a dead chicken alive. It's impossible. We as human beings can study life. We cannot create life. Never have, never will. Only God can do that. Look at this world. Did it just happen? Or did God create it? I believe God created it, and it's important that we believe that God created it. I believe, I believe that God made this beautiful world with all the life from nothing. I believe that Jesus was raised from the grave, He was dead. But God, because of his love, raised him to life. I believe that God can give life to my life. This morning I have five objectives that I'd like to present to you for our lesson. Objective number one, like for all of us, just to admit that we're selfish and that we have a selfish nature. Objective number two, I'd like for us all to admit that our selfishness is what's hurting our family. Our selfishness. My selfishness hurts my family. Objective number three is I'd like for all of us to take responsibility for overcoming and changing our selfish nature. Instead of trying to make everybody else responsible for our happiness and for making our family better, it's just to take responsibility ourselves. Objective number four is to admit, once I take that responsibility, that I can't do it. I can't make my life better without God. Only God, and this is the fifth objective, that each of us leave here this morning believing that God is the only source of life. God is the only way that we can overcome selfishness. God, it is the resurrective power of God's love that can make our families better. 
trying to do it without God does not work. It does not work. You can read all the self-help books you want. You can go to all the counselors you want. Your nature will never change without the power of God. And I encourage all of us to submit to God, to look to God, to turn to God, to follow God, to seek to understand how God can help us to become like Him and He is love. This morning if you're here and you recognize that your selfishness is hurting your family and you recognize that you haven't taken responsibility for it, you recognize that you really haven't tried to do anything about it because you felt helpless and hopeless and you didn't think anything would work, I hope today that you will recognize the power of God and you will turn to God and you will repent. This morning, when we say we believe in the power of God and we begin this life of overcoming our selfish nature, We have to be obedient to God. We're either going to seek to obey God or we're going to seek to obey ourselves. On the day of Pentecost, whenever Peter and the other apostles were asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? The process of beginning to follow God, the process that begins to overcome our selfish nature, to be obedient to God, he said, is to repent and be baptized. So this morning, if you're ready to begin that process and you have not been baptized, and you're ready to start that process of overcoming your selfish nature, we invite you to come and be baptized right now. Won't you please come as together we stand as we sing.